Today, I'd like to welcome Emily Ogle to the show. Emily is an accessibility advocate and strategist who lives and breathes accessibility. She's an expert in WCAG and VPATS. She trains people on accessibility using exercises she designed to provide perspective. She works with teams to remediate accessibility issues. She is also the senior accessibility designer at CVS Health, and that's just my condensed summary of her LinkedIn profile. Emily, can you tell us more about yourself? Yeah, absolutely. So um, I have a lifelong relationship with advocacy. Um, I have a lived disability, so advocacy is something I've kind of born with because I was advocating for myself. Um, and then, you know, that became like a super focused passion of mine. And as I learned more about accessibility, my passion grew and uh I took an interest in getting, getting into the field specifically. I, I wanted to work 100% on accessibility and I've been super grateful to, to have the opportunity. Um, it's really rewarding to be able to, to work, advocate for people in the workplace and living out my passion from a nine to five, even though it's not, uh, accessibility is not a nine to five for me. Um, so one of the reasons I asked Emily to be on the show is because I want accessibility to become mainstream and Emily's an expert at relating the importance of accessibility. Emily, to someone listening to this episode who isn't aware of why accessibility is necessary, why is accessibility so important? So we saw a lot of examples in the pandemic. Um, when the pandemic started, it kind of exposed some gap in how people with disabilities were given the information or not being able to access information about the safety protocols. Um, people wearing masks in doctor's offices. And that was my experience is that uh, I really struggled to understand my doctors during the pandemic. And, and then it also exposed, the pandemic also exposed the fact that working from home is much better for people with disabilities. And it, a lot of people um, turned out to like working from home and uh, there were all sorts of tools being used. So there was, you had Zoom, you had Teams, you had Google, um, I forget what the dreaming uh, conferencing tool for Google is called, but, uh, some tools are more accessible than others. And I find Teams to be more accessible than Zoom. Zoom is more accessible to people who are blind. And, and so the offices had to kind of, in order to not run afoul of like regulatory affairs, they had to uh, make sure that they were using accessible tools. And this also opened up the world for people with disabilities because corporations could no longer say, oh, working from home isn't a reasonable accommodation. And, and so I really liked how, like, the pandemic, even as stressful as it was, it kind of opened the doors in a lot of ways for people with disabilities. Um, and uh, for me, one of the most important aspects of accessibility is independence and privacy. How did you start working 
or how did you come to start working at CVS and how do you currently help CVS? Yeah, so um, I first need to just disclaim that none of none of what I say here is representative of CVS or um, uh, uh, my thoughts are my own, they're independent here. And I had started at CVS um, about a year and a half ago. And when I was exploring, looking into other um, ways of employment, I liked that there was a design element. At this point in my career, I had had my hands on strategy training, um, uh, online courses, and uh, auditing. I had done just a lot of little things, uh, but I hadn't done design yet. And I had been design adjacent, but not actually within design. And so I felt that it was a new way for me to to learn and add to my bucket of skills. And <clears throat> in CVS, what I, I've really enjoyed about working for CVS is that it's shown, really shown a commitment to accessibility. And the um, I uh, I am embedded on a design team, and I am one of 50 uh, designers. And, and so CVS has really shown a commitment to accessibility. And what's been great is seeing kind of like people make that connection in their head, like, oh, yeah, if we design it this way, that's going to be confusing for people, or it's going to be difficult for them to navigate. And uh, it's been great because I can get kind of ahead of the um, design. And, and so there's been a lot of reactivity in my career previously where we're auditing things that have already been created. We are educating on things that have already been created. And this time we are designing before it's created and preventing accessibility issues and creating more access at the outset. And that's been really meaningful for me. And another thing that I do a lot at CVS is mentoring. Because, um, you know, I still have that training background. I still have that mentoring background. And, and so with so many people, we have such a diverse uh, set of uh, skill sets. And so it's been really nice to mentor people and um, just help level them up, help support them. Um, because in the accessibility space, we don't have a lot of professionals as an industry. And so I feel I need to um, start building and helping people level up and just start spreading so that as more and more companies recognize the need for accessibility, there are enough professionals to meet that need. And so I, that's a, uh, another important part of what I enjoy at CBS. And I think that also gets to your training, right? Like one of your specialties is training and you have designed exercises uh, specifically so that people can relate and better understand accessibility. What is one aspect um, that begins to one aspect of your training, or one one exercise that really begins to change the way people think? 
I, I've had several. Um, <clears throat> when I'm doing exercises that are designed to kind of make people think, I shy away from like empathy exercises. So I don't do exercises where it's like you are sitting in a wheelchair for a day. It's not meaningful. And at the end of the day, people are not still in a wheelchair. What I prefer to do is to take something that people are already doing every day and then just put that accessibility lens on it. And, and so people are already using their phone and they're already sending text messages every day. But then it's like, okay, texting was derived from TTY technology. You are using technology that was originally created to help people who are deaf and hard of hearing. And, and then just kind of helping that to think, oh, like they get a lot of benefit from it as well. Something that they use every single day, take for granted. Even my dad sends text messages these days. Um, and then there's also Alexa um, or Siri or any other kind of uh, personal assistant. Um, there, that is a tool that can be used for people who may have blindness and um, they, we might use it to say, Alexa, turn on the light, um, or Alexa, uh, create a grocery list for me. But while we're saying that just because uh, it's convenient, it's actually reducing a lot of cognitive load for people who um, struggle to maybe write things down, to stay focused on something. Um, and, and so <clears throat> it's yet another tool that has kind of become a day-to-day -day for us, um, but it has opened up a world for other people. And, and then there are some uh, other ways to relate. So you have the digital accessibility, which is like texting and such, but you also have physical accessibility. So you have wheelchair ramps. Wheelchair ramps are often used by parents who have a stroller, or they are used by people who are just moving a grocery cart. And, um, and when you go into a grocery store, most often there is automated opening doors. You walk through those, you don't even think about it. But those automated opening doors really help people who use wheelchairs because it gives them much easier access. And during the pandemic, I like to relate that these accessibility tools, like an automated opening door, made it safer <laughs> because I wasn't having to put my hands on a doorknob. I could just walk in and I didn't have to worry about germs. So I added another layer of, um, uh, of uh, the convenience and the usefulness of something that was designed for people with disabilities in mind. I love that you make training a point of emphasis. I was just thinking about how you were saying you um, you leveled up. You're leveling up everybody's game, but you're doing it at scale. So, because I think what we need to do is we need to get out of this, like we're reliant upon sourcing to an accessibility expert and instead start, if everybody starts learning about accessibility, this becomes much more doable, much more quickly, right? Because then everybody's thinking of it and and it's not um, it's not something where it's like, Oh, we've got a problem. What do we do? It's like, no, you, you, you make it a part of your process. You integrate it and you're also being more considerate. 
And it's not like everybody has to be an expert like yourself. It's just that they start, like you said, leveling up their game. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, uh, did you did you want to add anything? Any comment to that? No. Go ahead. What What is ableism? So ableism is a form of discrimination that is specific to people with disabilities, and it can be really just uh, everywhere. Um, disabilities is still one of those areas that people just don't really understand the nuances, and and so they participate in ableism. And one example that is uh, quite common is when people see others, like a wheelchair user, and they rush to open the door for that wheelchair user. They rush to help, or they push the wheelchair, and they are participating in ableism because they've taken away that person's agency to make that decision for themselves. Um, and, and, and then ableism is also reinforcing stigmas around disabilities. And, and so it is saying things like, um, you're my inspiration. Um, you are doing things like I would do on an everyday basis, but you're disabled, so you are inspiring. And it's very infantilizing to people with disabilities when they hear congratulations, you did it. And it's like, um, yeah, okay, I did it. Um, and it has the effect of invalidating people's experiences, um, especially when you get into that, like, um, I uh, will pray for you. I will, you, you go, you, you did a good job because, you know, um, it may have just been their life, their entire life. I have been hard of hearing my entire life. And I remember someone once saying, I'll pray for you. And I was like, oh, okay. You do you. That's weird. Okay. But um, it makes it seem like it's like something that you don't want. And the reality is when it comes to disability, everyone can come in and out of disability and 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 so ableism is reinforcing stigmas and it is isolating people um, and I have uh, unfortunately dealt with ableism myself in uh, in the workplace and in just random uh, situations I went to New Zealand a few years ago and that really just kind of highlighted for me how far apart some countries are in terms of where they are in being accessible. New Zealand um, is not as accessible as the United States and there was one part where we were watching a, a video because we had a really long drive and the video wasn't closed captioned and so I was like okay I guess I'll just look at my phone for this three and a half hour drive instead of being able to participate like everyone else. So I was excluded at that point. Um, and it's not, it's not a fun feeling. It's kind of like, um, it's very isolating. And, and so, um, 
when I am very passionate about identifying ableism when it occurs, explaining why it's ableism and what we can do instead. Um, and so for an example that I go to is the word or the phrase tone deaf. Tone deaf has a literal meaning, which means that you can't differentiate between pitches, um, frequencies, and music. People use it uh, colloquially a lot as oblivious. This was an oblivious uh, comment, or this was an oblivious action, but they used tone deaf. And, and so they're using a disability to uh, identify something as that. Um, and we also see this a lot with like um, taking other people's disabilities and saying they're having a moment. Uh, oh, this is, I'm just having an OCD moment. It's my OCD. When they're not OCD, they don't have OCD. OCD is actually a really debilitating um, mental illness, and it's not something to be trifled with. And, and, and then sometimes people, I've heard people say, oh, I'm, I'm a, be having an ADHD moment. Well, if they don't have ADHD, it's not appropriate. And, and so what really what they can say instead is, I'm having a hard time focusing today. Because that's really what they're trying to get at. Um, and, and, and then the other thing that I've experienced is, um, uh, people kind of complimenting me or thinking that they're complimenting me by saying, Oh, I, I forgot that you're hard of hearing. And it's like, they're saying, Oh, you are so normal that I forgot that you're not normal. And it's like, well, I've never forget that I'm hard of hearing. Um, and the specific example that um, I'm alluding to here is when I was at a work meeting at my in my previous uh, role, and we were having a team meeting, a team outing, and we went to an extremely loud restaurant, and it became very clear that it was going to be impossible to hear. And and then the person who organized it said, "Oh yeah, I." I totally didn't think about what you would need. And it's kind of like, this is the result of you forgetting that I'm hard of hearing because that means that you didn't take my environmental needs into consideration. Um, and so, yeah, there, there's lots of ways to be ableist. Um, building empathy is a huge part in helping people be aware of potentially abling um, or ableist term, potentially ableist situation. Um, it's not ever going to be perfect, but if we can make progress a little bit at a time, that would be wonderful. As you were, as you were uh, describing uh, everything, I was thinking that the whole time I could have, I had examples in my mind where um, you can, I mean, it's just so easy to, um, to think of examples where on social media, right, someone is called an inspiration and we know why they're called an inspiration is because they have a disability and they've done something and yet people call them an inspiration. Um, what are, how can we practically reduce the ableism that goes on? I think being exposed to 
uh, diverse populations is going to be the best way. Um, at CVS alone, since we do have such a large team of accessibility professionals, we also have a really diverse team of disabilities. And, and so um, at CVS, I've been exposed to people who need reduced stimulation, who um, who can't handle or, you know, they need more streamlined um, uh, content presentations. And I've also been, uh, I, I've been really fascinated by uh, language accessibility. And, and so I had never really been exposed to the world of language accessibility, where you know, we talk about English as kind of like a default, talk about real estate as, um, as we're talking about like white space. And, but then when you add Spanish, translate Spanish, it becomes a completely different world. And I think that people need to understand the human being next to them. Uh, one example that I think of a lot are sometimes in like, let's say a smaller office environment, you have people who maybe chat a lot to the side and they, everyone has collectively noticed that this one person over here takes a lot of time off. That person just takes a lot of time off and people start grumbling because like, well, how come I'm not getting as much time off? But that person may be taking that time off due to a hidden disability. And, and so having, you know, if they were, if there were some understanding that, you know, just because somebody's taking a lot of time off doesn't mean that they are unreliable, doesn't mean that they are not doing what they're supposed to do. And, um, and then once people start realizing that they can start kind of rechecking themselves. Um, another example of ableism that I'm hopeful people are kind of learning to break away from a little bit more is an assumption about who should be using accessible parking. Uh, <clears throat> there are many stories of people who appear able-bodied being harassed for using accessible parking. And they very much earn, or not even earn, they very much are entitled to use those accessible parking spaces. And as more stories like that get circulated and people start realizing more and more that, hey, the what I see isn't what I get necessarily. Um, and the only time I will ever really make a comment about someone in the accessible parking spaces um, is when they park on the, the yellow line because they are directly um, blocking access to the vehicles themselves. I don't make any assumptions about um, who uh, is in that vehicle, what their experience is. And that is because I have uh, been exposed to many different perspectives. And so I'm able to pull back on that ableist assumption. Um, and so it's really about exposure and, um, and being, making it relatable. And, um, pe women for, or people who, um, um, <clears throat> have autoimmune disorders, 
they experience what's called like the spoon theory, where there's been times when people will say everyone has the same 24 hours in a day. And pe- people with uh, autoimmune disorders don't have the same 24 hours. And uh, a task that me takes someone else five minutes can perhaps take them an hour. And, and so it's calling out. So let's say I see something like that on LinkedIn. I see a post like that on LinkedIn. I try to comment. I try to say, hey, you know, this is a different perspective. Um, and they can do what they want with it. But what I take away from that is I'm not only telling this person that there's this different perspective, but other people are seeing my comment potentially and maybe taking that into my and to the back of their mind and be like, okay, I'm going to keep that in mind for when I see that in front of me. Um, there's, there's no one way to do, uh, to be battling accessibility or um, you don't want to be battling accessibility, ableism. Some of what you're talking about, right? just not, not making assumptions, you know, based on just because, um, we think we're interpreting something one way, it doesn't necessarily mean that's the case. Um, and, and one other thing is, um, is microaggressions. So mm-hmm. one, what are microaggressions? And can you also talk about microaggressions towards people with disabilities in and out of the workplace? Yeah, so microaggressions are kind of like subtle digs um, subtle statement that kind of try to invalidate disability or use uh, disability against you. Um, <clears throat> I, unfortunately, in my last uh, job prior to CBS, I dealt with a lot of microaggressions. And I have, I'm not shy about the fact that I'm hard of hearing. I'm not shy about saying I need these things in order to be successful in communicating. And one example of a micro question was, um, I was really having a hard time concentrating on international calls. Um, and so I was trying to convey like these calls are an exercise in concentration. They are, you know, I put a lot of energy, even if if it's just a half hour call, it takes up a lot of energy to try to keep up with it. And the person, uh, what she said was, I, it's not their hearing. It, you're just not paying attention. And that really stuck out to me because I was like, not only am I not paying attention, I'm <laughs> like paying so much attention that it's just very draining. And, and then the, she then proceeded to invalidate um, by saying, we all have problems with international calls. And it was, again, it's like, uh, well, yeah, but I really have problems. <laughs> like, I literally can't hear certain sounds. And so when you have people who may be using English in certain different sounds than we normally might, yeah, it's a challenge. Um, <clears throat> and then um, the one micro question that I had already kind of uh, alluded to earlier was forgetting that I am hard of hearing. Um, and when we were starting to 
kind of like be together in the same basis, but with caution, the masks were an issue for me. And I said, can we procure clear face masks so that I can read lips while we are working together? That That is a need for me. And the person came back to me and said, you just seem to be fine right here. Um, you're not having any trouble understanding the conversation right now. And I was just like, uh, it's going to be a problem if we don't have face masks. And, and then there was the, um, we were talking about like going to a park, maybe just kind of having lunch together. Um, and I said, well, it's a windy day. Uh, we really need to avoid, if possible, windy days because when, when they knock on my hearing aid, it can sound like I'm in an airport hangar. It's really loud. I cannot hear. And again, it was like, well, that shouldn't be a problem. I mean, we'll just not face the wind. <laughs> it was the constant um, doubting of what I was saying was true. It was a pushback of things that ultimately didn't matter, like, did it matter to this person if we found a, a spot that would be away from the wind? Like, why did that matter? And uh, and and then like, um, so people with disabilities can experience microaggressions in that I have people who resent that they get like a cushioned spot in an office. Like they get the prime spot because that happened to be the area of the office that has the most room for their wheelchair to maneuver. And you might have people who make comments like, well, like, I, I wish I uh, were in a wheelchair so that I could have that spot too. Um, and and so my, it can come in many, many forms. And obviously microaggressions are not unique to people with disabilities. Um, people of color experience microaggression and what they might experience is someone like trying to cut the hair. And it's seemingly innocuous, but we run into consent issues with it. I didn't give you permission to cut my hair. Um, and, and, and so uh, uh, some of the questions we might ask are people of color, like if you ask, uh, like a black woman, how many children do you have? And you don't make that first question, do you have children? You're kind of making an, an implicit um, suggestion that you just assumed that she had children because of stereotypes about women, black women having children. Um, that's just the, um, um, in the wild example that I'm thinking of. But another one for people with disabilities is that they are asexual. <laughs> and I say this, and I'm an actually a literally an asexual person. <laughs> and I say this because um, <clears throat> people assume that people in wheelchairs, people who um, may not come across as sexually attractive are asexual. They don't have relationship. And, and so microaggression can come in the form of surprise. Like, oh, you you have a partner? That's really, oh, okay. And it's just, um, it's 
the just kind of an um, a theme of people doing everyday things that takes others by surprise, and um, yeah, it it's interesting the different ways that people make comments, um, and they're not keeping their unconscious bias in check. They're not even aware of it, and as I become as I am exposed to more and more perspectives, I have more and more ways of checking my unconscious bias. Okay. So if you're more aware of what you're implying through how you're acting, your behavior, what you're saying, it's going to reduce the, the microaggressions that take place. Mm -hmm. um, two more questions before you go. Um, I want to uh, tap into your expertise on VPATs and um, overlays. So, when it comes to VPATs, um, can you just, one, explain what VPATs are, and then two, if they're helpful, and then do you see VPATs, um, the term VPAT coming up more in the private marketplace uh, when it comes to procurement? So, um, <clears throat> first of all, VPAT stands for Voluntary Product Accessibility Template, and it is an auditing tool to create an accessibility conformance report. And so WCAG has all sorts of criteria. WCAG has, and WCAG is Web Content Accessibility Guideline. And Section 508 is the U.S. Um, regulatory body that uh, put federal requirements on federal agencies on what they need to do to be accessible. And the VPAT is the VPAT happened to be easier to say than like ACR or accessibility conformance report. So most people are, they are meaning the conformance report when they are using the phrase VPAT because ultimately the VPAT is just a template. It's just a literally just a tool to guide you through the auditing process, showing accountability for each and every single criterion. Um, <clears throat> So I have been seeing more and more references to um, like a, just kind of like a base understanding like, hey, this VPAT thing is kind of important. I need to ensure that we have a VPAT. <laughs> Procurement is one of those areas that's still running behind. Um, <clears throat> there's more acknowledgement that you need to have accessibility expertise embedded in development, in product, in design, but you also need it in procurement. And, uh, and just so I'm using plain language, um, um, procurement is the process of contracting with vendors and contracting with third parties. And companies, they when they are looking outward, like, hey, we need to be accessible for our customers. And so they start working on making their website accessible or uh, their products accessible, but they forget to look internally. And there's actually the gigantic law called the ADA, um, American with Disabilities Act, that stipulates that employers cannot discriminate against their employees. And so companies are often forgetting to procure internal tools that are accessible. And, and so one example that I have is um, WebEx. 
versus teams. WebEx has a lot of limitations when it comes to like closed captioning. Um, there's no speaker identification. The captions all run together. Uh, they stop frequently. They, um, uh, they're just a challenge for me. And if a company continues to use WebEx, they are in fact discriminating against me. Um, and, and so procurement, what happens, what I see a lot within procurement when people are attempting to engage about accessibility, they ask about the VPAT because the VPAT is the most common thing um, that they, it's one of the most common things that you see when you just Google accessibility. Um, but they don't necessarily have a fundamental understanding of what that VPAT means. So like, can you send us the VPAT? They get sent a VPAT, okay, box ticked. They sent the VPAT, but they have no idea how to look through the VPAT and be like, okay, they've stated here that they don't really have good keyboard accessibility. That's a major, major critical aspect of providing access is keyboard access. Like, <laughs> it's, keyboard access is a big domino. If you don't have that, a lot of other dominoes fall. Um, and, and so there's a, really a need for people who are in procurement, who know how to interpret accessibility questions and know how to interpret accessibility deliverables and also how to ask for them. Um, uh, there were several times in my previous role where uh, they would, we would get a question of how ADA compliant are you? It's like, well, VPAT aren't actually part of the ADA. Um, and when it comes to digital accessibility, the, the guidance from the ADA still is a little bit unclear. It's not explicit. And so whenever I see that, I'm like, okay, I'm, I'm actually getting this question from someone who is not an expert. And, and so I'm like, they're probably asking about the VPAT, but I also know fairly surface level. It's not going to be a deep dive into the discussions and the gap and how we are going to remediate any gaps. Um, and so we still have a long way to go when it comes to procurement. You bring up a really good misconception about VPATs. So VPATs only address accessibility, they only account accessibility. That doesn't, just because you have an accessibility conformance report, it's only an accounting of your product or service's accessibility. It doesn't actually mean that your product or service is accessible. And I think that a lot of people lose that. Mm -hmm. um, one, more, one more question on the topic of website accessibility. There are these uh, quote unquote solutions. Um, they're commonly referred to as overlay widgets that, that um, their, their stance is, hey, look, like if you install our widget, it's going to make your website either uh, WCAG conformant or ADA compliant or close to it. Um, can, what, is your, what is your opinion on overlays? So I, um, I feel like I can draw overlay, the co topic of, of, of overlay conversation back to ableism. Um, because overlays treat accessibility and in downstream disability as a one-stop shop. 
um, a quick fix. And accessibility, you know, like levels A and double A of a CAG alone is like 38 criteria. It's actually, I think it's more because now there's more criteria. And there have been times when I have been sitting in a room, we are looking at design and we are trying to figure out what to do to make something keyboard accessible. And it's something like, does focus go here, focus go there? Do you use your arrow keys? Do you use your enter keys? And with an overlay, you're not getting that conversation. You're not getting that thoughtfulness. Um, you're getting kind of um, a Band-Aid, but it's not even, not even a sufficient Band-Aid. It's making a lot of assumptions. So again, ableism is about assumption. And so overlays are making the assumption that they're somebody who needs a screen reader isn't actually using a screen reader. So here, use our screen reader that maybe isn't as fast paced as you might want, isn't maybe a female voice or a male voice or a robotic voice. Um, <clears throat> they are making the assumption that if you have low vision, you just need words that are in high contrast. It's not a case that you need words magnified to 600%. Um, it's not a case of, uh, they don't consider that like people with low vision may need just like uh, an isolated view where they have a focused view that hones in on content and help them to keep the rest of it out. Um, what I found interesting was um, I saw one overlay with like an ADHD mode. And I'm like, wow, ADHD is super complex. So so many different ways to, um, <clears throat> to have ADHD. And what this one did was just block a line of text across the um, screen, uh, uh, highlighted a block of the screen. And it made like this huge assumption about what ADHD entails. And it's really kind of insulting because it's really complex. Neurodiversions in general is really, really complex. There is no one-stop shop. And, and so overlays that are promising to, that are promising compliance, um, I feel like they are, um, they're seeing an opportunity. Like you're gonna have a lot of companies don't know accessibility. It goes back to that procurement um, gap where we're missing accessibility expertise in procurement. And if you have someone procuring accessibility services who don't know much about accessibility themselves, and you have this like flashing lights, um, bells and whistles tools, like, oh, problem solved. Um, and so overlay companies, I think, really saw an opportunity to exploit that to exploit the fact that we still have such a lack of knowledge about accessibility in general. Um, I think it's really unfortunate because their marketing machine, I, I wish that the accessibility community in general could have like used that type of marketing machine to um, like, as you're trying to do mainstream access accessibility uh, because I think that's like a missed opportunity on the accessibility industry is 
um, in how we talk about accessibility in general. We're not talking about it necessarily um, in a way that people are executing it. Um, and so, yeah, that that's my thoughts on overlays. With overlays, I think what has been particularly difficult is they have they have infiltrated ed education, and so people believe what they are saying and they they just don't people have i think have a hard time believing that someone would lie so um people would people someone would lie just outright and and like a hundred percent lie and that but that's what they do and, and they get away with it because you know they're they're really playing on uh, the different gray areas but in some cases they're not in some cases it's very obvious and you know people like carl groves and adrian rosselli have done a great job of pointing that out. But, um, you know, we just don't have, I think with, um, with you mentioned the accessibility community, community um, you know, nobody, nobody is ripping off people by selling software and able to make that amount of profit to where they can just continually buy ad space. So um, it is a problem, but it ultimately, um, they will fail. Uh, Emily, one, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for taking the time. Um, do you have, is there any final notes or any message or anything else you'd like to say before we close up? Um, you know, I, I really enjoy being able to talk about accessibility. Um, I, I love it and I love sharing my passion and I, um, I get a lot of meaning from it, and I just want to share out what I experience. And I'm hoping that with every conversation that I have about accessibility, that it is making someone think, it's making someone stop and think, and the light bulb goes off on their head. And that's been like the most rewarding part is seeing people see the need see the humanity behind it and embrace it. That is wonderful to me to see people embrace it. I tend to feel like a proud mama bear when someone says, hey, I made this accessibility statement over here and they listen. <laughs> Small win. And then there are some big wins. Um, um, but it's been, it's really been a rewarding journey and I appreciate the forum to, talk about my own experience. Well, I, I really, uh, I'm so appreciative that you're here and uh, mission already accomplished because I learn every time I listen to you. Um, it always, it always helps me. Um, uh, how can people contact you or, or uh, also, are there any resources that uh, people can find to uh, learn more about you? Yeah. So I've actually written an article called like say the word disability uh, it's about um, people's tendency to try to replace the word disability with others. And so I, I'll send that link to you, Chris. And um, I've also done webinars. Um, I did a webinar on how to create accessibility training for when you're actually just training on accessibility. And I've also done a podcast with Joe Devin. And of course, you can also find me on LinkedIn. Um, I generally will accept accept requests from anyone, and um, I look forward to hearing from additional people. Um. Okay, well, again, thank you so much for being here. Um, 
Every, all of the links will be in the description. 